and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd with me, Hannah Crosby. We're delighted to be recording our second series right here in our historic home in St. James's. Together, we'll be uncorking and discussing the wines our experts have pilled from their own collections, each from a wine region you may not have discovered, but undoubtedly deserves to be on your radar. For this week's episode, we'll be focusing on Spain, a varied country with very distinct regional identities. Because of this, collecting Spanish wine can often be confusing, but our wine director, Mark Pardo MW, and Javier Perurena are here to unpick its complexities. From Rioja to Priora, all the way down to the Sherry Triangle, we'll reveal why Spanish wine deserves a place in your cellar. Mark, Javier, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to demystify Spanish wine with me. Mark, you're one of the most recognisable faces of Berry Brothers and Rudd, as well as one of our most valued experts. Could you tell our listeners a little bit of an intro as to what you do for us as our wine director? Well, I'm the wine director at Berries. I've been here since 2003. Wow. And the wine director is my latest incarnation in the business. And what I do, I work with the buyers to oversee everything that is bought with a particular emphasis on our own selection wines. Mm-hmm. But I'm also one of the major voices for our key campaigns, mm. such as Bordeaux and Burgundy, increasingly in uh, North Italy as well. Uh, but I travel with the buyers to regions every year. So mm-hmm. I'm out of the country two or three months a year. And then my role is to be the link between the buying, the suppliers, the team and the customers. So it's about purely about communication mm. in all sorts of ways. Mm. Best job in the world. And Javier, you're one of our account managers, but listeners will be able to tell from your accent that you're actually from the country we're going to be talking about today. Yes, I am. I come from San Sebastian in north of, in north of Spain. Mm-hmm. Small city these days, very popular as mm. a foodie destination. It is an hour and a half drive north of Rioja, two hours drive uh, south of Bordeaux. So pretty much in an area where I've been always uh, connected to gastronomic experiences and mm-hmm. wines and wine committees, tastings. And uh, and luckily, for personal reasons, I've been traveling a lot throughout Spain and very much connected with a region in the south, with the region of Jerez. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm a big lover of sherry wines as well. Mm. And yeah, very happy to to be here today and talking about the wonders of, of the wines of Spain. I can't wait. Well, more about your love of <laughs> sherry later. But I just want to take a second to talk about the amazing room we're recording in. We're sat on the second floor of our home at number three that looks out onto St. James's. Mark, would you tell us a bit about the room that we're in at the moment? This is the general office drawing room. It's next door to our general office dining room and tasting room. So it's a reception room for us now. But it is panelled in light mahogany. Mm. It's a room from the early 19th century, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I first came to Berries, it was the office of the managing director. But it's far too nice a room to have it uh, (laughs) simply used for administration. And so a few years ago, we we moved everybody upstairs and opened this floor up to our customers. Mm. So this, this is a room where... One of the options when you come to Berries for, for a dinner or a lunch, you'll be received here before you go in for, for your tasting and, and meal afterwards. So let's delve into the wonderful world of Spanish wine. Mark, you once mentioned to me something rather interesting that I'd love for you to expand on. You said that more than any other country, Spain is more about the producer than about the region. What do you mean by that? I've always felt that as a country, Spain is very specifically defined by its two famous regions, which is Mm -hmm. Rioja and Rebel del Duero. 
And the other regions, leaving Sherry aside, Spain as a country tends to lack a little bit of focus. Mm. People know Rioja. If you're of a certain age, you'll have a uh, an expectation of the style of the wine that you're going to taste. That's far from the case now. There are lots of different interpretations. But because there is this diversity and, and development in Spain, and I think also a a liberation of attitude among so many producers that actually probably more than any other region I know, it is individuals who break new ground mm. rather than the Appalachian system. So Rioja has been reinvented in many ways mm. because of the energies of the people, individuals in, in that region, rather than a generic shift in that direction. Totally agree. I mean, I think especially when we look uh, from in, from an international perspective, Spain is pretty much well known for this, their two regions, Rioja and Rivera, but there is much more in a small, there's a myriad of small growers or, and, and small regions which are not really going beyond the borders of Spain or the regional Spain, the, the regional areas. Mm-hmm. I'm talking of uh, um, areas like uh, Toledo in central Spain or Extremadura in southwest, uh, Granada in Andalusia. There are so many different areas which are not known at all, but the, the, there are great small growers, small producers who are doing excellent jobs looking at what is going on internationally and adapting techniques and new ways of, uh, of not only viticulturally, but also in terms of winemaking to, to create exciting wines mm. away from the traditional current we've seen uh, in Rioja and, and, and Rivera. If I may, I'd like to mention something which I, I, I've used it for a few courses I've taught about um, wine, Spanish wines here at Berries, um, at the wine school. Uh-huh. A way of simplifying Spain for me is been looking at Spain in seven different areas, okay. really. So I divide the whole country and within the, each area will be a number of small regions and a small producer to look at. Okay. But essentially, the seven areas are, first of all, the north, the coastal Spain or the, the, the green north mm-hmm. of Spain. The second region would be the upper Ebro, which is essentially Rioja. Uh, moving down to the Ebro, we, we would get to the lower Ebro, essentially Catalonia, where we find those wines of Priorat and, and Benedes further up. And, and then we move to central Spain, uh, one of them fourth area to mention being uh, Rivera del Duero. Another central area called the Meseta, which is where we find the Toledo, wines from Madrid, Gredos, and upcoming areas. Mm-hmm. And then farther south, we would be moving to the Sherry region as a whole. And I forgot mentioning one more, which is right below Catalonia, mm-hmm. being the, the area of the Levante, of Valencia, Castellón, all the way down from Catalonia, from the area of Barcelona and Girona, down to along the coast, up to Murcia. Mm-hmm. Those are seven big areas that give us a view of the different regions we could look at broadly in mm-hmm. Spain. And within those, we would need to go deeper into small regions, producers, looking at them by sometimes grape or varieties or ways of making wines, mm-hmm. really, because then is the imprint of each individual winemaker, mm. as Mark was mentioning. I wish someone had explained Spain to me in that way a long time ago, Javier, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> that makes it a lot easier. Yes, well, there's clearly a lot to get into, but Javier, we tasked you with bringing in a bottle that will help us start to unlock and understand the world of Spanish wine. It's sitting right here in front of us. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, we've got a bottle of by Lopez de Heredia, Viña Tondonia Reserva Blanco, mm-hmm. from the 2009 vintage. 
I am bringing something from the traditional Spain at mm -hmm. this time, as traditional as it can get. Uh, so traditional that it, it it is even rare to find as well these days. It, really? it is a, yes. I mean, it, it is a wild one, a wild one, which I, I am amazed by this one every time I pop a cork. Uh, the reason being is it, it 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 is a one made by one of the most traditionalist ever uh, producers mm -hmm. in Rioja, established in the 19th century, 1877, if I'm not mistaken. And wines are being made these days as they were made back then. Yes. Uh, not only things have not changed much in the way the, the, the wines are made, but also they are very unique because somehow the styles produced by this winery, as in this particular particular case with the white mm -hmm. somehow they have been they, they are lost it is hard to see a wine of this caliber and style i'd say mm -hmm. it is to start with a wine with uh, a white wine which spends six years in oak and therefore it shows an oxidative character which it goes perhaps against the tendency the tendencies we've seen in white wine making which is about preserving freshness mm -hmm. and fruit and and, and therefore, it gives different nuances, which might be counterpointing, which more modern styles are showing. But it has been kept there and admired by many like, like, like myself. Despite six years in, in oak, we will taste the wine and we will see that as we mm -hmm. try it and we taste it. Uh, despite time in oak, it's not an oaky wine. It, it's just, okay. it's just to me, it represents the mastering on the use of oak in winemaking because mm -hmm. it adds character, but it doesn't just add the oakiness that the oak might give. Mm -hmm. For many reasons we, we can discuss as in not being a new oak, which is used when the wine is made and many other, uh, and the time is spent in the barrel. A very exciting wine, a very loved wine by me, something I, I keep dearly in my cellar and I have the pleasure to enjoy from time to time because not an easy wine to get these days. Oh, brilliant. Well, let's crack it open. Let's get pouring. And while you pour, Javier, I understand that you've got a special connection to Lopez de Heredia from when you did a harvest nearby. Yeah, I think it's very special. I mean, it's, it's just a, a small anecdote which I had when I was my first ever harvest in, in Rioja. There we go. Uh, that was back in 2007. And obviously I am academically trained in wine here in the UK, but in terms of, I, I wanted to actually learn the ropes in the vineyard. And I spent three years finally with this producer during the harvest campaigns. But uh, in 2007 was my first one. Small family business, three people running the business with a team of pickers for, for harv um, harvest time. And I had to show that I was willing to do it mm -hmm. and I wanted to, I was going to be there. So there were no day off, there were no days off at all. It's really? just from Monday, oh, harvesting time. Harvest time is just working every day and, and quite hard. But I did ask permission to go and visit Lopez de Heredia one afternoon. Say, can I just leave? To, I, <laughs> I like to see this producer. Is a, a producer we've I, I've had the luck to enjoy at home and it always brings good memories. I love the wines, as I mentioned earlier. And therefore, I wanted to see, being there, I wanted to see and, and visit them. And it was one of the most amazing uh, visits I've ever had with mm. Maria Jose. She took me in with a group of people from Valencia, uh, which was um, uh, traveling through the region. And it was the most amazing visit and understanding of the 
producer, the region, the wines, and, and tasting afterwards, where we actually had to stop her from opening bottles from <laughs> going back to the 80s and saying, shall I pop this? No, please, let's mm. stop that. Yes, well, let's taste. So a wonderful color, mm. initially. And uh, I think it's a very expressive nose always. As I mentioned, uh, despite six years in oak, it doesn't show oakiness in the wine. It's just, I get ginger and aromas of uh, nectarine, subtle perfumes of herbal notes, sometimes mm. hay-like. Hey, it's, well, it's, as always, a, a totally brilliant wine. It wouldn't show any oak character because, of course, it's aged in old oak. So uh, there's no new oak influence on the wine. So the oak influence is to do with its, its oxidative aging. Uh, but <laughs> these wines are, are almost indestructible, aren't they? <laughs> and they, and they have so much uh, intensity. And with wine drinkers, we're almost not used to these kind of flavours because, as you said, so many white wines are now made in a very uh, direct, pure, precise, uh, aromatically uh, focused way. And wines like this are really not about that. These are kind of, kind of wines that have a a whole entity uh, about them because the aromas are the flavors which are the aromas again everything just mixes together and this in this in this extraordinary mix um i mean i love the adjectives you gave it i, I wouldn't mm. seek to change or improve on them this wine has all of those elements in it what's wonderful for me about this sort of wine is actually its texture it always has this wonderful creaminess would imply something on the yeah. dairy end but it's not creamy but it is it is mellifluous Mm. You could say honey, but it's not sweet. Uh, you could say it has a lanolin feel, which we sometimes pick up in you know, wines from the Loire and things like that. But this is nothing like a wine from the Loire. It's completely, completely different, completely different. So you can feel on, the, on your lips as you, yeah. as you, as you taste. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that I love these bottles because from the first glass to the uh, last one, it will evolve, it will change and it will give different different nuances even that age yeah, yes yeah. It's, it's worth also noting but it's the most <laughs> wonderful color as well yeah it, it is a it is a dark color for a white wine but you wouldn't call it gold uh, it that, that would imply it's it's too old but it has an intensity it's almost like a dark green gold uh, yeah. almost it's yes. uh, most most individual I, I just wanted to pick up on something that javier said earlier on to do with the choice of wine because we're t tasting and discussing a wine that is made in an incredibly traditional way. Mm -hmm. And that might be seen by listeners to be antithetical to what we were talking about at the start, which is this, this change towards modernization and the, uh, the kind of the disregard for traditional practices and making new expressions by virtue of the energy of these, this new generation making wines in this way. But in fact, I think this, this wine is a consistent choice because it's almost the exact the reverse. They've refused completely to move mm. with the times, so that so much so they still stand completely itself, yeah. alone. Yeah. There are no other wines <laughs> like this, just in the way there are no other wines like Alvaro Palacios's from elsewhere in Spain. They are completely and uniquely and stubbornly individual. <laughs> um, and when it comes to kind of old school Rioja like this, what kind of aging potential are we expecting? I mean, this wine is 09, as Mark just mentioned, this having been aged uh, oxidatively, they are almost indestructible. I have to say, I have a bottle back in my cellar in Spain of the 1990 vintage, which I'm just keeping for one day. The day will be the day I open the bottle. It's hard to, 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 to tell, um, but I can see looking at the freshness the wine is giving us at the moment and how alive it is and how bright. Ten more years in the cellar, 
easy. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a criteria you need to think about. These yeah. these are these are almost the Benjamin Button of wines because they're they're <laughs> born fully mature mm-hmm. and then they just last forever. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying they get younger as they get older, but you could argue they do because they keep that freshness mm. all the way through. So this is not really a wine you think about as, mm. as a drinking window. Uh, they just are what they are. And you decide when you engage with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mark, you've expressed a particular fondness for the white wines of Spain, besides this lovely Rioja Blanco that we're drinking. Are there any other white wines we should be looking at to enjoy now or to even collect? Well, I have the great privilege to, privilege to uh, you know, travel around the world and, and drink wines from all over. So I like a varied diet. <laughs> and so whatever I'm drinking during the week uh, is probably... Well, I don't drink a bottle a night, but uh, uh, there's, there's probably two or three bottles on the go during the week, and I'll dip into them mm-hmm. one way or another. And I do get a lot of pleasure out of the the, the dry white wines of the north of Spain. Hmm. Um, Albarino, I think, is a slightly misunderstood grape variety uh, in that it seems to be in every uh, wine list everywhere nowadays in London. Yes. And a lot of it is a bit thin, I would say. But from the that part of the, of the region where... The grape variety is planted up in the northwest. Make interesting, not necessarily age-worthy, but certainly a wine of two or three age, years age is not a problem for a good Alborino. It takes on a, yeah. a nice little nutty extra note. But that's for day, day-to-day drinking. Of more serious consideration are wines from the Godello grape variety. Uh, that, that is a grape variety that has a has more of a, a kind of more of a familiar kind of Chardonnay-ish texture about it. There is a richness, there's a spiciness. Uh, and it is a great variety that can take a little bit of wood as well. And the best practitioners of really top-notch good day you are really, really worth considering. I mean, we, we do one from Rafael Palacios. Yeah. I think he probably recognises the best exponent of the great variety. And whenever I pull a cork on a bottle of that, of his Godello, it just says, oh, wow, that's good. It's always kind of a bit better than I expected it to be. Uh, you know, Spain has this image of being... Sort of, uh, it used to be a, a region that produced vast quantities of, of inexpensive drinking wine, and somehow that 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 little perception is still embedded in in mm. people's minds. Mm, yeah. uh, but with this new wave of Spain that's coming through, there are so many surprises to be had, and and over delivery of expectation as well. And linking with the idea of the new wave and, and new producers, I was down in South Spain a couple of weeks ago in Cadiz, where I would expect to be drinking. Sherry, and there are very interesting wines, Palomino Fino based, yeah, which is the grape yes. for uh, sherry, but made as a still wine. So sherry producers are also looking into uh, making still wines, which are worth exploring and and looking at, and, and obviously trying and tasting and enjoying because they are new um, upcoming styles, which uh, produced only regionally, but they bring this idea of exciting new prospects in Spain yeah. and say Palomino say I must mention if I may the Chacoli uh, wine from my from my, from where I come from from mm. the area of San mm-hmm. Sebastian <laughs> you, you, and so you should it is delicious but all those wines Hannah are, are these are wines to be drunk, drunk when they're quite young mm-hmm. yeah. these are, yes. are not yes. wines for cellaring yeah. yeah. if we talk about white wines from Spain for aging it is pretty much exclusive of Rioja anywhere else you can think of uh, there are a few examples in of Godello which have been made to age and I had a few examples and they they have developed nicely and they are very enjoyable 
But yes, I think Rioja is the place where has been traditionally making them for mm-hmm. for cellaring, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the great variety in this wine is Vaiura. Yes. Which is a great variety without almost any personality whatsoever. It, it, t- it tastes almost nothing when, when you have it unoaked. The character of this wine has come almost entirely, a little bit from, from, from the minerals in the vineyard, yeah. but it's the ageing process yeah. sure. that, that delivers this extraordinary uh, mm. effect of the wine. Well, let's loop back around and talk a bit more about sherry, your love for sherry. Mm. I understand that your parents are near the area, have you? My, my family has a place uh, down in the south. Ah, okay. Where I come from in San Sebastian can be very rainy. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, we look for the sun in the, so- <laughs> in the south. And yeah, years ago, we went for, for years and finally my parents decided to buy a place down mm-hmm. there. And, um, and I've been going since I'm a kid. And therefore, I, it's like my second local area in Spain, mm. I'd say, Jerez and the province of Cadiz, which is a lovely area. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it, it is daunting, perhaps, when we look at Sherry, because it needs to be, it needs a bit of reading in order to enjoy uh, the different styles. And it needs to be understood. It's sure. not a wine that comes straight uh, to the palate and, and is enjoyable at the first sip. Mm-hmm. It needs to be looked at understanding why it tastes like that. Mm-hmm. So that's perhaps the side that m- makes it daunting. Uh, I've had uh, over the years, in the, when I was working in the shop here at Berries, clients, I remember coming and saying, I like to like sherry, but I don't. Say, so, oh, wow, okay. okay. Why is that? Because my grandfather used to, uh, used to like sherry, right. but I only like sweet sherry. All right, okay, maybe it's because your palate is used to sweet uh, things and therefore you're enjoying sweet perhaps try less sweet styles and, mm-hmm. and try to get into the drier styles slowly so what i mean is we need to educate the palate as well as understand that the wines intellectually by mm-hmm. reading why they are and and taste the way they do it is perhaps one of the interesting things in sherry is that it is also uh, the, the the result of the solera system which is a very specific way of blending uh, wines for, and, and, and blending different vintages and, and in order to find the consistency of a fortified wine, which is unique in style and gives specific character for the place it comes from. Mm-hmm. So all very exciting and interesting to read and taste and, and enjoy, mm-hmm. in my view. But nonetheless, yes, uh, a bit daunting. It requires a bit of thought and reading and mm-hmm. tasting and, yeah. and time. I'd and say. I think a podcast episode all of its own. Uh, I yeah. think so. Frankly, I, I agree. It's, <laughs> a, yes. it's, a, it's a major, major uh, yes. topic. And uh, I think some of the, the, the uh, for, for the English market, some of the, the names of the, the sherries, for those who aren't familiar with them, are, can be quite intimidating as well. It's, it is complex to unpick all the differences because yeah. it's made in a different way to anything else. Mm. I mean, the, the, whole, the role of the Almathanista as well in terms yeah. of what they do for the sherry houses, etc., etc. Yeah. If I was going to sum it up in just a, a pithy sentence, it, I think for the care and time and love that's lavished on sherry, it's the best value wine on the planet mm-hmm. <laughs> because the price you pay for a great bottle of sherry does nowhere reflect how much um, uh, yeah. effort has been put into creating it. 
Hmm. Well, we've talked about the key regions when it comes to collecting wine, but Javier, you, we've kind of mentioned a few regions already, you're a huge advocate for extending our sights beyond the obvious. Hmm. What other maybe under the radar regions should we be exploring? Well, interestingly, and perhaps because of how many times I go there, I think Cadiz, the region around Jerez for steel wines, is making very interesting things, uh, reds and whites worth exploring. In the south also Granada has very interesting um, wines. There is altitude and therefore there are uh, vineyards at high altitude which are worth, or producers growing at high altitude which are worth considering and tasting and trying. The region of uh, Extremadura, in, um, right above Andalusia in bordering Portugal, south, in, sorry, south west Spain, is a big region for, for winemaking as well, but it doesn't really make it beyond Spain. I haven't seen wines from Extremadura in, in the UK, I believe, but I think there are uh, great wines to, to be had from the region. Central Spain has many different areas. Gredos is making a, a stand these days, it's mm-hmm. becoming popular. And then obviously in the Levante, there are many small producers, growers, and, and same in Catalonia, which we, we tend to know uh, to stick to Priorat, Monsant, and, and Humilla. Gredos, well, it's a region that wine has been grown in Gredos since ever. But it is a very hard uh, area to grow wines in. I mean, it's, it's uh, high altitude. All, all the vines are interestingly very old vines, sometimes uh, 100-year-old, 80-year-old vines, and therefore worked or, or, or grown in, in goblet or, or, or in basso, which are even harder to grow. Uh, being very old, they don't produce much, but of great quality. And therefore, during the 60s, 70s, many of those areas were literally abandoned. And there are, the, the vines are still there. And there are producers like uh, Telmo Rodriguez who have been traveling around the area in Febreros and near Madrid and recovering those, those areas, not producing huge quantities because the vines uh, give or yield what they come. But that's the, interest po- the interesting point uh, above them, in my view, that that they they, they 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 give they are aged vines and therefore they produce little but of great quality mm-hmm. again and it's mainly mainly all I know is Grenache mm-hmm. from the area traditionally it's the region that was grown there it was has has been left and uh, and being recovered now and there are a small a small growers or even even private individuals. I know the story of a sommelier who stopped his job, found a plot in Gredos, and is making natural wines in, in Gredos at the moment from a very small plot of land. So it's an area upcoming, very popular, very interesting producers, already well established, like uh, Comando G, part of the new wave of, of Spain, in my view. Mm. Javier, could you pour me a bit more of that excellent <laughs> <Certainly. laughs> Tondonia Blanco? Oh, well, we're pouring. Um, Mark, you've said that Spain, you find, is a region that is particularly hard to collect. What do you mean by this? Well, it's not hard to collect if, if you've got an appetite to do so. Mm. Um, my, my point was that Spain doesn't seem to have a collective presence mm-hmm. in the way that the classic regions of, of France does. And to be fair, it's not historically Im- Im- implanted that they would do things that way. And the current trend for buying wines um, on release, which is part of the whole the way of collecting at the moment, uh, has really just spread from Bordeaux. Mm. So we had to persuade the Burgundians to do it that way. We have to work on the on the producers in the Rhone to do it that way. But in Spain, there is such 
a, a fierce amount of independence, such a variety of styles, that there is no moment in the year when we say, this is this is, th- it. This is yeah. it, Spain is releasing the new vintage, because it could be anything from the most recent vintage to something 10 years old. So having a sense of identity about what the new vintage in Spain is about mm. is a little hard to get hold of. And I think also this is why the, the strength of the individual producer is such an important Goes trigger back to that. Uh, yeah. uh, in how it works. My point is not that one shouldn't, shouldn't try to collect Spanish wines. Indeed, one should. But you have to be a little more uh, adaptable in your expectation of, of how these wines come to market. And it just requires just a little more effort and communication, both on our part and also from the yeah. customer's point of view, to uh, keep an eye out for when these things uh, appear. And in many ways, I sort of hope that Spain doesn't join the, uh, the bandwagon of just being a, a, another region that produces all its wine and, and puts it on the market all at the same time. I think there is something rather quirky and specific about people who do things in their own way, in their own time, and with less of an eye on being coerced by market pressures and being much more um, wedded to the vision of what it is they're trying to create, mm. which again loops back into this, this, this theme of, of the conversation is it is about the individuality of the producer, albeit whether they're in a, in, a, in a specified region or if one follows Javier's geographic division of, of, of the country, it is down to individual geologies and altitudes, but most of all the impact of that, of that producer, uh, that's very important. And, an, and another little thing occurs to me while I'm, I'm on a little train of thought, give <laughs> Javier a chance to catch his breath, <laughs> is that people, I think, often think that Spain is a hot country. Javier's already said that, that where he comes from, it rains a lot up, up, in, the, up in the northwest. But I only really realised relatively recently that Madrid is the highest national capital in Europe. The altitude, it's very, very high. Really? The, the, oh. the winters are very, very cold. Very. And so if you're looking for places that, that are able to create high quality wines, one of the first things you look for is this thing called diurnal fluctuation. So you can have really hot days, that's kind of fine. But what you need are cold nights. So the vine has the chance to, to, uh, to work during the day and relax at night. And are these, um, the, the area you were talking about just now, that has this extraordinary fluctuation. The, yeah. the winters can be bitter, but the summers can be, can be really, really hot. Yes. But you adapt your viticulture to it by, by growing on basso and uh, looking after things that way. But the, the, the ganacha that is grown there is equally grown in Navarra, yeah. And is also indeed grown in Rioja. And indeed, there are Riojas now made predominantly from Garnacha, yeah. uh, as opposed to the, the more, more well-known and followed Tempranillo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a big, big melting pot. There's so many different little plates being spun at the same time. Yeah. Spain, I mean, going back to the, alt- to the point of altitude, uh, let's not forget that uh, central Spain needs all at a minimum of 700 meters. Uh, mm. So Madrid is, is, I think, around 800 meters mm. of altitude. So yeah. Is, yeah. That, that was gives the, uh, the chance to slow down the ripening process and developing better flavors. And, and, and well, it's complexity. Yeah. Complexity and comes yeah. from climatic variation. And you need sunshine to get the grapes ripe. 
and mm. and Spain has lovely ripe flavors because they get plenty of sunshine yeah. as all the tourists know but but you also need the ability to retain freshness in the wine and so altitude becomes is one of the critical yeah. uh, factors now in in w what we look at when we look mm. at the potential for regions for making high quality wine and Rioja has altitude as well doesn't it yes but when it comes to collecting if if I may I I'd also say in my view I would look at it in uh, from two different perspectives one would be well three if i may one would be uh, regional obviously and the other one would be based on the tendency or the philosophy behind traditional or upcoming or non-traditional mm -hmm. uh, and that's i think we've been discussing this repeatedly uh, today and we can see that in 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 one single region and going back to the rioja the most traditional I can see three tendencies there, in the, or three philosophies. Sure. One of them is the traditional we have today. And then there was in the 70s a move towards less emphasis in the oak and more on the fruit, uh, which could be the modernist in a way. And, and then there is the postmodernist, which you just mentioned. Mm. One single variety, French oak. And therefore, in terms of collecting, I think Spain is a country that must be present in uh, in any cellar because of history, because of the styles of wines, because of many reasons I could give. But how to look at it, one would be, in my, in my view, from the traditional point of view, the other one from the more modern or postmodern or, or new wave uh, mm -hmm. Spain, and then obviously regionally. We almost had the Spanish Inquisition then, Javier, did you spot? So you said, I'd like to give you two reasons. <laughs> No, three. Ah. <laughs> I just wish you'd carried on. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't leave the regions aside. <laughs> Brilliant. Briefly mentioned also as a region which has made an impact in international level, is on the international stage, is, is Priorat. In my simplified version of Spain, it would be the region of the, of the lower Ebro, which covers the whole Catalonia. And within that, there is Priorat, a pretty much mainly Grenache-based area with very unique soils of um, Licorel, Licorella, called which, which actually help in the development of the grapes even further. So it gives a very specific type of Grenache. And I remember looking at this um, when it comes to Priorat, linking it when I was, I, I, I was thinking of when I was teaching in the wine school, years ago, I haven't done it again, but uh, I used to link, in order for us to understand how Grenache behaves in that area, it's not looking just at Priorat, but going beyond the border with France up to Chateauneuf du Pape. So if we look as a whole wine region from there and down this, the coast of um, east of, of Spain, we see that Grenache is one of the main components. And we see that producers from the southern Rhone are going into areas like Priorat, understanding what's going on. They understand the grape, they understand the terroir because the climatological conditions are similar. And therefore, since we have more familiarity with the wines of the Southern Rhone, mm -hmm. because they are readily available and we all love Chateauneuf, think also of Priorat with, with their own character and, and particularities as a region to, to keep in mind on a, on a specific expression of Grenache and looking at that part of Spain beyond the Pyrenees and beyond the border with France, mm -hmm. uh, just to stylistically see the area in, in terms of, of wine. 
definitely a, an expression of Grenache to to keep in the cellar and enjoy very enjoyable wines. Bit heavy bottles to share, I would say, <laughs> but but uh, nonetheless, I mean, a, a great one of the examples of of one of the most Spanish wines, a Garnacha. Yeah. And, and at the same time, of course, it's a perfect illustration of the speed uh, and level of change that has been in, in, in Spain because the region in Prirat has always produced grapes, mm. uh, but, but usually for more, more religious purposes yeah. uh, or through a cooperative system. And I tread very carefully with a, with a, with a Spanish native next to me uh, to talk about the politics of Spain. <laughs> but... Um, it wasn't until, we forget, it wasn't until the, the mid-1970s that, that Spain changed and uh, after the period of Franco and the, yeah. and the liberation that swept across the country. So although we think of Spain as an ancient wine-producing country, the, the freedom that comes with being able to do things in a certain way has only really come in the last 50 years. And therefore, Priorat is a brilliant example of a region that was forgotten, yeah. downtrodden, overlooked, and it was the energy of... These individuals that we've already name-checked in the past, but in particular Alvaro Palacios, yeah. has reinstated and reinvigorated a region and given its proper place on the world wine map. And from being nothing to being probably some of the most expensive wines in Spain. Yeah. And just to round things up, Javier, could you give listeners just one reason why they should be adding a case of Spanish wine to their sons? I think Spanish wines are some of the best wines in the world, along with many others, and therefore they have a space in any cellar. And Mark, if there's one thing our listeners should take away from this conversation about the magic of Spanish wine, what would that be? That there is enormous quality in Spain, mm. and uh, it is a, it's a market that's a bit polarised, and there is still a lot of inexpensive wine that comes out of Spain, and, and what if it is very good for the, for the money it costs, but Spain is affirmatively a fine wine country and the peaks of excellence are equal to anything else. And if I make an MW reference, when I was studying for my MW and you have to do a lot of blind tasting, uh, the number of times that I have confused uh, a fine old Rioja for a really good red Burgundy are beyond measure. As these wines age, they achieve this filigree fineness of fruit and texture that is just incomparable. So Spain should be on everyone's radar. How could you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, all that remains for me to say is, Mark, Javier, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me to discuss the amazing world of Spanish wine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast and see what wines we have available, visit bbr.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon. But until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.